you would take your word scriptures tonight, your Bible, and open with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter five, and if you would stand, please, we'll read this together. We're going to read the uh, <clears throat> first fifteen verses. Second Kings chapter five. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. Because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him now, let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, Wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and 
And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray again, please. Father, we thank you for this time. Oh, Lord. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. Don't make the people pay for my sins. Lord, may we hear your word tonight. Lord, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you communicate with your people. Thank you for your great love wherewith you have loved us. Lord, go before tonight. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. I, know, I know we've looked at this scripture before, and I want to go back to it. And there'll be a little, there will be a little bit of repeat, but I pray not too much. But I want to consider tonight the gospel remedy. The gospel remedy. And I suppose if we had a title, it would be that, the gospel remedy. And I'm taking my text tonight, actually, from Corinthians 118, 1 Corinthians 118. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. There is no magic in the gospel, but there is power in it. The power to save men and women and boys and girls. There may be many hindrances and obstacles to our salvation. The world, the flesh, and the devil will all fight relentlessly against the salvation of a soul and the placing of our faith and trust in the only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. This battle continues after we're saved. The battle of fighting the good fight of faith. Certainly there are many hindrances after we are saved to retard our growth in grace and in the knowledge of God. There are many obstacles, but the gospel answers every one. Every problem, every question, every doubt, every fear, every halting, every hindrance can be answered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? How does the gospel answer these questions? Because it is the power of God. Salvation is not by the strength and cunning of men. Salvation is of God. Men are saved by his power. This, notice this scripture in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. This salvation is so completely in the hand of God and so belonging to his power that the race doesn't even belong, go to the swift, 
nor the battle to the strong. Now, in our economy, we would have the race going to the swift and the battle to the strong. But in God's economy of salvation, he depends on nothing from man. Isaiah said, we read it in Romans 10, 20, but Isaiah is very bold and saith, saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. Now, who is Isaiah talking about here? Well, specifically, he's talking about the Gentiles. And he's talking about Naaman, and he's talking about us. But he is talking about all men whom the Lord would make himself manifest to. Naaman wasn't looking for God. He cared nothing for the God of Israel. He cared nothing for God. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved Naaman. You know, and every salvation story is a love story. Psalm 68, 18 says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast, given, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord might dwell among them. Here is gospel remedy. Here is gospel remedy even for the rebellious. If you are here tonight and you're rebellious, <laughs> which we, we all have been, there is a gospel remedy for you. And not after you bring yourself out of your rebellion, but the gospel comes to you in your rebellion and saves you out of it. But God commendeth his love toward us in that after we have freshened up a bit, no. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whatever the hindrances may be, there is gospel remedy. Naaman himself met with many adversities on his road to recovery. There were enemies within and enemies without to halt, to confuse, and to turn him back. And the more I looked at this account, the more I just amazed. Almost sounded too southern there. The more I am just amazed that, that Naaman didn't just give up and go home. In fact, we know at one point he did leave. He left the prophet's home angry and in a rage and was ready to return to his own country. But where did he end up? <laughs> the Jordan. How did that happen? God was at work taking captivity captive, even the rebellious. <clears throat> Jesus' disciples saw many turn away from Christ and follow him no more. And what would they do? John six sixty six. from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Do we, do we need some hope tonight? Does someone here need hope tonight? There is hope in Christ, and there is remedy in the gospel. 
I want to look at the first eight verses of this. Verse 1, now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Naaman was a very gifted man. He was the captain of the Syrian host, a great man with his master. He was honorable, well-respected, well-respected, and a mighty man of valor. This man knew the art of war. And it was by Naaman that God had even given deliverance unto Syria against Israel for a time. Naaman was a war celebrity. He was a five-star general, but he was a leper. Leprosy was to its victims in those days a destiny. It was sure to be a life of torment without any hope of recovery, but would eventually lead to loneliness, isolation, and death. That is what the leper could look forward to. I can't remember where I came across this statement or who said it, but they called leprosy a living death, a living death. It was a horrible disease, and in the later stages, your body would decay before your very eyes. Body members would become disfigured and disformed, and limbs could fall off. Don't let some of this repeat, this repeat um, distract you from the awful reality of this disease. In this disease of leprosy, your body would simply rot and decay, and yet you would go on living. You were, in a very real sense, the walking dead. Leprosy was also a very shameful disease. It brought much shame when it was discovered. No doubt Naaman tried at first to hide it, for it often starts very small and unnoticeable, but as time went on, he could no longer hide it. It had become obvious and visible to all. All of this is, of course, a picture of our sin. Leprosy had a, a great sting to it. Not the sting of needles in the body, but the sting of, of reproach in the soul. Leprosy brought a sting of shame. Our, yeah. Sin is sin brings a sting of shame. I'm sorry. Sin is shameful. Shame ought to accompany our sin. Christians still do sin, and we still do have those inward corruptions that still war against the soul, and we must, as long as we live in this world, we will carry these bodies of death. But we have been delivered and cleansed from leprosy, from our leprosy, and we have a promise in the holy book, for our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Amen. We look for the, we look for the day when the church of Jesus Christ will be saved to sin no more. 
But those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ are still in bondage to their sin. They are as, as leprous as Naaman. They walk around in living bodies, but spiritually they are dead. In giving Timothy instructions on those who are widows, Paul warns that there were some who were not living for God. And he says in 1 Timothy, But she that liveth, she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth, a living death. Sin brings shame. And it brings shame to saint and sinner, to the saved and the unsaved. We can play with sin. We can minimize it. We can excuse it. We can ignore it. But before God, sin is as the leprosy that defiles the man. I had a brother in the Lord one time tell me, and I can't remember if this was before I was saved or after, but he said to me, when the Holy Spirit shows you what you are doing, you are going to be so ashamed. Those words cut, and they cut deep. But he was right. Brethren, there is gospel remedy for sin and its shame, and that's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is not a human work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, we do not work our we don't work ourselves into godly sorrow. The Holy Spirit works it in us. Now Naaman is proud. And he may be ashamed of his leprosy, but at this point he is not ashamed of his sin. And what Naaman needs is a good dose of godly sorrow. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wasn't writing to sinners. He was writing to the church. And he was writing to Christians who needed a good dose of godly sorrow. We're there sometimes, and we need that. And listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed unto repentance. For ye were made sorrow... Sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world may feel bad about sin, but it allows a man to continue in it. And we live in a culture that is not only shameless concerning their sin, but they have furthered sin's defilement and have become brazen in it. There are those who, according to Scripture, are past filling and the sting of shame and reproach over their sin is gone. Paul speaks to the Corinthians uh, in the first in the first epistle, he says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up, brazen, and have not mourned shame 
that he hath done this deed might be taken away from you. Now they listened to Paul here, and they obeyed his word, the word. They obeyed God's word. And now, back in 2 Corinthians, he tells them the effect of this godly sorrow. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Notice the effect of this godly sorrow. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all these things ye have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. Wouldn't that, would that not be encouraging to hear from the Apostle Paul? In all these things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This was the effect of their godly sorrow over sin. And that is not only godly sorrow over our own sin, but also mourning over the sins of others. The whole church at Corinth, at least it seems the majority, was now mourning over their sin. And in this, there was a cleansing and purification. Let's look at verse 2. Let's, let's pray again. Father, I'm having a hard time focusing. I, Lord, um, something is amiss in me, Lord. Show me and help me. Or if, Lord, the enemy's just fighting, then, uh, Lord, you have promised in your word that you would put him under our, we our feet shortly. Yeah. Whatever it be, Lord, that you would help us to deliver, Lord, what you have given, and may it be in a right spirit, a right attitude. Lord, we want to see you glorified, and we want to see the saints edified. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Now this little girl waited and served Naaman's wife. And I think we could all find encouragement with this little maid. For she was a faithful servant of God in a foreign land and under such providences as she was facing. This girl served her captors. And she did so without a hint of revenge, bitterness, complaint, murmuring, reluctance, or despair. She could provide her own sermon, and she leaves us a very good example. Uh, let's look at verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, or with the prophet that is in it, Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So this little maid is serving, Naaman's wife, but she goes beyond even all this. She would not just serve she would have God to bless this home. Her desire was to see 
the Lord's blessing on this home. You think about Jacob when he was in the home of Laban, and the Lord blessed Laban because Jacob was there. And she wanted to see this blessing on this home. And so she, she speaks, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. This little maid truly hoped for the recovery and health of her master. She could have secretly wished him evil. She could have wished God's judgment upon him, for which he was no doubt deserving. But she would, by her words, do him good. There was a holy boldness surrounding her faith in God. Not arrogance, but biblical boldness. This little maid has opened her mouth for the good of another, and she doesn't say, would God my captor were with the prophet. No, she says, would God my Lord were with the prophet. Praise God for her. Praise God for her faithful witness. You may not think that you are much of a witness for Christ, but if you are saved, you have a story to tell. If you are saved, you can witness for what Christ has done for you. Her witness was simple, her words were few, but she was faithful to her God, and he used her. She could not do what Elisha the prophet could do, but at the same time, he could not do what she's doing. Elisha is not in Syria. He isn't living in Naaman's home. As a Christian, no one can take your place witnessing for Christ. No one. Every part of the body of Christ is necessary and needed and cannot be replaced. And that brings both great liberty and great responsibility. It was by the witness of this little servant girl that Naaman came to faith in Christ. And she was able to do something that even the prophet could not do. It was her words, and I believe even more, her joyful countenance that won Naaman's confidence to take this journey to Israel. Someone has trained this little maid. It really seems that she has had some training and a foundation. You don't just go to a foreign land and wake up as a spiritual giant. This just doesn't happen. Someone has worked with her. Someone has talked to her. Someone has prayed with her. And now in the heat of affliction, the gold is being refined. Whoever has trained this little maid didn't just give her a list to follow. We can fill our children with list upon list. But when they get into the reality of a culture that is no friend of grace, a list alone will fail them. It's not enough. This little maid was taken captive by the love of God before she was ever taken captive by the Syrian army. The love of Christ now constrains her, and the knowledge of God consumes her. She knows something of this prophet of the Samaria in Samaria. She knew he was a man of God. She knew that he had an anointing upon him as a prophet, and she spoke about him. She did not keep it to herself. 
She spoke. You can almost hear the calm resolve and quiet assurance in her voice. Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Faith speaks. Faith speaks. The word says in 1 Corinthians 4.13, We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Faith speaks. Faith opens its mouth. This kind of faith stirs up a home. Her words created a stir in this home. Eventually, her words went to the king of Syria and, in a sense, stirred up a nation. This was not the common language of this home. Think of the gloom and despair that must have accompanied this dreadful disease that Naaman had. How would you encourage a man in such a condition? What would the conversations have been like in this home? But now the little maid speaks. And these were new words to this Syrian family. They had never heard words like this before. Job 34.3 says, For the ear trieth words, as the mouth tasteth meat. For the ear trieth words, as the mouth tasteth meat. What a verse. This is really speaking of discernment. We are to try, test, and prove words, just as the mouth tastes and proves the meat. We don't eat meat without chewing and tasting, and yet sometimes we'll swallow words whole without trying or proving them. To everyone in this home, this leprosy was an unconquerable mountain. It was a mountain. It was a mountain to Naaman. It was a mountain to his wife. It was a mountain to his servants, but not to this little maid. Faith speaks, and faith talks to the mountain. I'm not trying to be charismatic here. We could take this too far, but I believe her words and her faith are talking to this mountain. And they're saying, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. God help us. Not that we try to generate something of our own sparks, but that faith would do some talking and we would see some mountains removed and cast into the sea. Although Naaman had no saving faith at this time, I think these words brought some hope, hope to this home that they never had before. There is gospel remedy. The gospel is a message of hope. The gospel calls men to hope. Sin will lead men to despair, but the gospel preaches hope. And hope is always in God. I love this verse in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. It's a wonderful thing to be used of God. You don't have to be Elisha to be useful. God doesn't need any of us 
but he raises up prophets to do his work, and by no less grace, he raises up little servant girls for his great purpose. Let's look at verse 4. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the little maid, said the maid, that is of the land of Israel. The Lord hath promised that his word will not return void, but that it will accomplish that for which he sends it. The messenger but speaks it, and God affects the change. Let's look at verse 5. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. <clears throat> so the king of Syria is now involved in this. And he does not hesitate to send Naaman to Israel. Naaman is a choice servant and a leader in Syria. And it would certainly be in the king's best interest that Naaman be well and healthy and ready for battle. Naaman would now go to Israel with the authority and backing of the king of Syria. The king sends him with the letter and with many riches and gifts and says, Go to go. And I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And in verse 6, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. The king of Israel, having received this letter from the king of Syria, now reads it. And the letter is very simple and straightforward. This letter was not meant to confuse or irritate the king of Israel. It was not a riddle to be solved or a puzzle to figure out. It was an open request, an honest request but how it was sent and how it was received are two different things. Although the king of Syria makes no mention of the prophet in his letter, it was certainly reckoned that the king of Israel would know the prophet and he would thereby know what to do with Naaman. It would seem that the king of, of uh, Syria, or Syria expected the king of Israel to fill in the blanks. And here is a case of miscommunication on a grand scale. The king of Israel does not have the same frame of reference in reading this letter that the king of Syria had in writing it. And when there is this kind of miscommunication, it is so easy to jump to conclusions and let our imaginations run wild. And that's exactly what the king of Israel did. And we can all do well to take heed to this because none of us are above it. And in verse 7, it says, And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God? 
to kill and to make alive, that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Although this letter was written in a very simple fashion, the king of Israel has, has read something into this letter that was not intended, and he is outraged at this request. <clears throat> the king of Israel reads this letter as though the king of Syria is expecting him to do something that only God can do. Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy. Now, the king of Israel's statement may at first seem humble and righteous, but I believe it lacks personal knowledge of God and it fails to demonstrate faith in God. I do not think that there is any real, true humility in this. The facts may be correct. He isn't God, that's true. And he has no power in, him, in or of himself to recover this leopard. But is there not a prophet in Israel? Just two chapters earlier, in, in the same book of 2 Kings, Jehoshaphat joins Jehoram, who is the king of Israel that we now speak of. Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. It was really Jehoram's battle, but he talked Jehoshaphat into it. To battle against the Moabites. And when they were seven days into their journey to battle with the, the Moabites, the king of Israel began to fear that God had led these armies out here to be delivered into the hands of the Moabites because there was no water to drink. Then Jehoshaphat, who seems to continually find himself joined in unholy alliances with the kings of Israel, asked a very good question. And in spite of the sin of affinity that he has with Israel, God used him both with Ahab and now with Jehoram, the king of Israel, to set the current circumstances in the light of God's protecting and providing power for his people. So he asked, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? That's a good question. <laughs> and that question changes the whole scene. Is it a desperate situation? Yes. Are the conditions extreme? Of course. But is there not a prophet of the Lord here? So these kings went to Elisha. There was also another king involved in this, I think, from Edom. So these kings went to Elisha the prophet, and Elisha told him, Make this valley full of ditches. For ye shall see neither wind nor rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water. Is there not here 
a prophet of the Lord? Does not that question bring all these dire circumstances to a sovereign God and to his will and then to submit to his authority? But if we look at this interview that the king of Israel now has with Naaman, there is no indication that Elisha even comes to his mind. No mention is made of Elisha. Matthew Henry says this, Therefore he, that is the king of Syria, desires the king of Israel that he would recover the leper, taking it for granted that there was a greater intimacy between the king and the prophet than there really was. This letter from the king of Syria, instead of revealing a unity and community between the king of Israel and God's prophet, it rather shows a great gulf and separation between the two. Things were not in Israel as the king of Syria had supposed. The king's reaction actually shows the spiritual condition of Israel and himself. He doesn't even seem to consider any of the spiritual ramifications of this letter. And he rends his clothes, which was a sign that there was a desperate and extreme situation in Israel. And this was so rare that when a king did this, everyone was on high alert to what's going on. Then the king of Israel goes even farther and throws contempt upon the king of Syria, for even expecting such a miracle. Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel with me. <clears throat> what kind of stumbling block has the king of Israel just put in the way of his attendants? What will they now think of the king of Syria? And even more, perhaps than even all this, what kind of stumbling block has Jehoram, the king of Israel, now set before Naaman? Think about this. God is doing a work, and a higher authority than the king of Syria has sent Naaman to Israel. And he is, by Jehoram's reaction, he is shunned, ridiculed, and rejected. Certainly, this is not what Naaman was expecting to find in Israel. And what a blot now is on Israel's testimony before their neighbors. You could have hardly blamed Naaman for turning around right now and going back home. Naaman Hearing of this prophet in Israel has gone to Israel, the people of God, in hope and expectation of some relief from this burden of leprosy. And his first meeting is with this very king of Israel. And this king is outraged. He is full of rage. He is beside himself. He is out of control. And he has rent his clothes and he is accusing the king of Syria for stirring up trouble. And all the while, Naaman is looking on. 
one of the greatest hindrances of the salvation of sinners is ungodly men. And even more so, those wolves wearing sheep's clothing. Men will turn you away from the gospel of your salvation. The word says not all men have faith. The Judaizers followed Paul from city to city, undermining his work and authority in the church to the end that men might be turned away from the gospel. Paul says in 2 Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. What about the Philippians? Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Brethren, we have a responsibility. We are to mark them which do not walk according to this word. Jesus himself said, Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be of his own household. That is the division of the gospel. There's many things that should not divide. But sometimes the gospel divides. This letter comes to the king of Israel, and what an opportunity for ministry. We have here a candidate before us, whereby God might be glorified in the recovering of Naaman from his leprosy. And the only word the king can say is, am I God to kill and to make alive? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where is faith? What would faith do here? What would faith say here? The little maid could have answered this letter. How would faith have answered this letter from Syria. How would a true biblical faith in the living God have answered this letter? Am I God to kill and make alive? No. No, king, you're not. You're not God. But there is a God in Israel, and you haven't thought upon him. You have not considered him, and you have not considered his prophet. Verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him, Naaman, come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. I heard a preacher one time, in speaking of the book of Acts, bring out the point that this book was named the Acts of the Apostles because these were definite and particular acts which they accomplished under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they were the acts, not the reacts, 
of the first century church. We would do well to live more in the book of Acts than in our own reacts. When Elisha heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he immediately sent word to the king asking him, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? This was not a question of ignorance on the part of Elisha. Elisha is not seeking information. He already knows the case, and he calls the king to some accountability for this reaction. Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Is both a mild rebuke and a searching question. The rebuke seems to highlight the inappropriateness of the response compared to the crisis. In other words, was this response necessary? Is the king thinking, weighing, judging according to the scriptures, or is he just emoting? Now I say this not to belittle the grandness of the case or the condition of Naaman. But does this case warrant such an extreme response? And we are too often like this king. Sometime, something happens and we get into an emotional frenzy. And at this point, we're no longer thinking, praying, or in self-control. Elisha's question serves as a mild rebuke, but it also is a, is a searching question. Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes could have been designed to call the king back to an appropriate frame of mind and even beyond that to faith in the living God. Where is your faith in God? You saw the valleys filled with water. You saw the Lord intervene and work in behalf of Israel for his name's sake. And have you forgotten these already? Consider your response. <clears throat> it is as though Elisha says to the king, Why are you so frustrated and overwhelmed as to rent your clothes? There is an answer. There is a God in Israel. There is gospel remedy. Send the leper to me. Let him now come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Was Elisha proud? Was he the man of the hour? No, this wasn't about his person. This was about the glory of God. That was the burden that weighed the heaviest on Elisha's mind and heart. The overriding concern for Elisha was to the glory of God. That's what drove him. Everything else was secondary. And I believe that Elisha was already concerned for the glory of God, not only in Naaman's recovery from his leprosy, but in his salvation. A lot was at stake here. Let him now come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. It was critical that Naaman should have knowledge, and that he should know that there was a prophet in Israel. God would not have us to be ignorant, but to know the truth and to know his revelation and to know him. Ignorance is the plague of sinners and ignorance is the plague of saints. 
Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed or cut off by, for a lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. We've all heard the saying, ignorance is bliss. But this is usually never the case. And certainly this is never true of spiritual things. To be ignorant spiritually is to be in darkness. And it is an awful thing to be in darkness, to live in darkness. But before we were saved, we too lived in darkness. We loved darkness. We soaked in the darkness. Ephesians 4 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. This is not just a testimony about some heathen sinner in some heathen land. This is us before Christ. We lived our lives in ignorance to the things of God. And this ignorance reigned in our lives. And it affected both mind and heart. For we walked in the vanity of our mind and in the blindness of our heart. We were as it was in the beginning of creation. We were without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then... Then the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the miracle of the new creation of a man in Christ. The old things pass away, and behold, all things are made new. The miracle of regeneration is by the work of the Spirit, moving upon the face of the waters, and by the word of Christ, let there be light, and there was light. Word and spirit. Word and spirit. There is gospel remedy for our ignorance. There is gospel promise for our ignorance. For, the, for he said, for Elisha said, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Brethren, this is salvation. This isn't just the recovery of a leper. This is about salvation. Elisha isn't simply referring to the mental arrangements of facts in our minds. This is a knowledge based on truth and faith. The scribes and Pharisees would put us all to shame with their knowledge of the Old Testament, yet Jesus testifies to them, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have eternal life. To know Jesus is to have eternal life. To know him. John 17, 3. And this is life eternal. That, ye might, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Naaman would go to the prophet in his ignorance and in utter darkness concerning spiritual things. 
He knows nothing of the life of God in the soul of man. He walks in the vanity of his mind. His understanding is darkened. He is alienated alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in, in him. And that is the truth concerning every man that knows not God. If you do not know God tonight, that is your condition before him. It is not enough to know about God. You must know him. But there is gospel remedy for our ignorance. In Matthew 14, 416, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. What does Naaman need for his ignorance and darkness? What do we need for our ignorance? We need light. We need the light of Jesus Christ. We need the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is gospel remedy. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now, if we have the light of Jesus Christ, we are to walk in that light as he is in the light. Bear with me just a few more minutes. Brethren, this isn't something of just what we do. It's something that we are. Paul tells the Ephesian brethren, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There is a great difference between the children of God and the children of this world. Men of this world will try to minimize that difference. But it is a great gulf. It is no small thing what God has done for us and what he's made us to be. And now we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So critical was this that the apostle says, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. This isn't just a verse for marriage. Good for marriage, but it's for the church. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? There is no fellowship or communion between light and darkness. This can affect a home. It can affect a church. Now, we all know that none of us are perfect. And we still sin and we still have a Savior. Praise God. But we cannot mix light and darkness. And tonight, we are either light in the Lord or we are darkness. And if we are outside of Christ, we are in darkness. Tell you what, it's a wonderful thing to see some of these young people coming to Christ in our midst. 
Men need the light of Christ. Women need the light of Christ. Boys and girls need the light of Christ. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. One more thing I want to point out. <clears throat> and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. This wasn't a casual statement for Elisha to tell the king, let him now come to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. It had rich meaning and truth to know that there was a prophet in Israel was to know that there was a God in Israel and that he was the only, the one and only true and living God and that this God of Israel was indeed the God of the universe. The prophets of Israel were men of God, chosen by God to speak his word and to reveal his will to the people. They did not speak their own words. They spoke the word of the Lord. The prophet was a sent one. He was an ambassador. His word was, thus saith the Lord. And so sure was his word that if it did not pass, he was counted as a false prophet. <clears throat> the prophets so lived and spoke as to make God a reality before men. They did not just speak to men about God. They spoke into the lives of men and nations the very words of the living God. They did not speak, just speak about a situation, but they spoke God's word into that situation. Go, gather vessels, not a few. Make me a cake first. Make this valley full of ditches. Bring meal and cast it into the pot. They spoke God's word into many situations. Their words cut and their words healed. Their words held back rain and their words, words brought forth showers. <clears throat> the king of Israel has just said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send to me to recover a man of his leprosy? Yet the prophet, by the word of the Lord, does this very thing. By the word of the Lord, he has the power to kill and to make alive and to recover a man of his leprosy. And the king of Israel has not considered him. This should have shamed Jehoram. This exposes his own leprosy. This should have so humbled the king of Israel into the dust, for it is clear that he did not hold the prophet in any esteem or honor. And I think the king of Israel should have at this point packed up his bag and went with Naaman, that he too may know that there is a God in Israel. If the prophet's if the prophet was, if the prophets of the Old Testament were all this, how much more is Jesus Christ to us?
There is one here tonight who is greater than Elisha. There may be many obstacles, both for sinners and saints alike. There may be many hindrances, both to the saved and the unsaved. Yet there is still gospel remedy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to him today. Fly to him. Bathe your weary soul in the light of his gospel. And may Jesus Christ take captivity captive tonight, even the rebellious. Amen. Amen. If you will stand, we'll have our benediction. <clears throat> now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.